Father, we ask now that you would speak to us. Speak through your word. Make your word plain. Make it clear. Cause it to live in our hearts and to bear fruit. Help us to build our house upon your word so that when the winds come, the rains come, Lord, um, we, we don't collapse into rubble, but we stand. Grant, O oh Lord, that your word would be life to us, Lord, that it would be sweeter to us than honey in the honeycomb. It would be more precious to us than gold refined seven times in the furnace. Grant, O oh Lord, that your word would be a, a garland around our necks, a, a crown upon our heads. That it would be bread, O oh Lord, for us. So give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to believe. Give us hands to work as we hear your word and receive from you what you're saying to your church this morning. Speak to us, O Lord, your servants listen. Speak, O Lord, your servants listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Leviticus chapter 23. As we continue our study of God's Word in this great book, which has been focused on the holiness of God's people, because God is holy. And as you turn there this morning, if you're a note-taking type, let me go ahead and give you your first note to write down. You ready? July 2nd. July 2nd. That's a Sunday. Sunday, July 2nd, after church, uh, Durst and Jacqueline Johnson have taken the lead on organizing a cookout. Over at Haynes Point, all right? So July 2nd, cookout after church over at Haynes Point. And let me go ahead and tell you, there's only one cookout better than the Johnson's cookout. That's God's cookout. And when we come to Leviticus chapter 23, we're coming back to that cookout thing uh, here in God's Word. Now let me ask you a question as you turn to Leviticus 23. Uh, let me ask you a question. What do you think it's like to be with God? What do you think it's like to meet with God? Okay. <laughs> There's a thought. Anybody else? When it comes to being with contentment. You got terrified, got content. Anybody else? This is apparently the call and response portion of the sermon. I heard somebody. Joyful. Joyful. Maybe all those things. I mean, when it comes to being with God, many people imagine many different things, right? Some people imagine a kind of grayness, a kind of boredom, right? They think God is holy, so he can't be fun. Right? Some people see a kind of a gloom in it. Maybe a gloom that's connected with terror, but a, a terror that's not also accompanied with faith. But when we come to the Bible, the answer to that question in Leviticus chapter 3, what is it like to be with God? What is it like to meet with God? The answer to that really comes in the image of feasting. Feasting with God. Rejoicing with God in the abundance that God provides for his people. 
Now, surely there are many things that go into that. Surely there will be the kind of terror that comes from holiness. There'll be the kind of contentment that comes from salvation. There'll be the kind of joy that goes along with feasting. But for this morning, what I want us to sort of focus on in Leviticus chapter 3 is that image of feasting. In Leviticus 23, God gives Israel a weekly and a yearly calendar of all the appointed feasts and celebrations they are to enjoy with him. So Leviticus 23 brings us back to our cookout theme. The entire book, really, has been about setting the vibe for an excellent cookout. And Leviticus 23, again, gives us the weekly as well as the yearly rhythm of these feasts and celebrations. What will it be like to be with God? Answer, it will be a continual feasting. If you're taking notes this morning, three points or three ways I want to divide our time. Number one, what's it like to, we'll see meeting with God weekly. Number two, we'll think about meeting with God yearly. And number three, we'll think about meeting with God eternally. That's the rhythm, weekly, yearly, and eternal, eternally. Look with me at Leviticus chapter 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. But you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink, off drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until the same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs, a year old, without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. 
They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be the they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial pro proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall not present a food offering to the Lord, or you shall present a food offering to the Lord. Verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does, not, whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim at times of holy convocation. For presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month, and you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feast of the Lord. It's common this time of year for somebody to ask the question, where's the cookout? 
Chapter 23 is the answer to that question for Israel. God gives them the calendar of the cookouts. These are the one-day cookouts. These are the seven-day cookouts. Here's the rhythm uh, for when you will observe these things. Here is the, the dates on which you will observe them and the purposes for which you will observe them. So he is setting the cookout calendar out for every year from now until eternity for the Israelites. And in this rhythm, there's a weekly rhythm of meeting with God. We see that in verse 3. Chapter 23, verse 3 where God talks, first of all, about the Sabbaths. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Now, this commandment to observe the Sabbath is in the Ten Commandments itself. It is based upon the sort of creation order. Six days, God created the world, and on the seventh day, God rested. That's literally what the word Sabbath means, day of rest. The tabernacle and the temple were physical places for being with God. The Sabbath is a temple in time. It's a temporal place for being with God. It's the last day of the week. It began uh, in the Jewish calendar at 6 p.m. on Friday and went to 6 p.m. on Saturday, the evening to evening. So for six days, the Israelites were to do their work. Then the seventh day was dedicated to resting and meeting with God. Every week, meet with God. Every week, gather with God. Every week, celebrate with God. And no one could work on those days. The Sabbath was a holy convocation. A convocation is a fancy word for an assembly, a gathering. It was, it was church service day. So they would gather with God, gather with each other in large meetings dedicated to the worship of God. Notice he says here in verse 3, all your dwelling places, every household, wherever you live, was to celebrate the Sabbath. We sometimes talk about people living for the weekend. We mean by that people living for the parties of the weekend, living for the recreation of the weekend, living for the clubs, well, weekend bragging rights, right? Well, Israel was to live for the weekend. Only Israel's living for the weekend meant living to party with God, to enjoy him week after week. So from the start, God established a pattern of gathering all of his people together uh, in his presence for mutual enjoyment of each other. God enjoying his people, his people enjoying him. And that Sabbath pattern provides a pattern for all biblical worship, really, including Christian worship. But because of the resurrection, the Christian church has gathered not on the Jewish Sabbath, they have gathered on the Lord's day. The basic idea is the same, though. Christ rose on that day, we worship on that day. One day a week belongs to God and meeting with God's people. That's the explicit understanding of the church throughout history. That's the explicit practice of the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. We set aside a day. We hallow it. We make it holy for meeting with God. We abstain from worldly entertainments. We abstain from work to meet with God. It's just assumed in the New Testament. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, for example, Paul says there, on the first day of the week, 
each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. He's addressing uh, giving in the church. When does he say that happens? On the first day of the week. That's the day of the week that the church gathers and sets aside for meeting with each other and meeting with God. Or we think of Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. It says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting the meeting, meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. A writer of Hebrews is saying, yeah, this, meek, this weekly rhythm of gathering and meeting together, we don't want that to be something we forsake. Instead, we want to gather, encourage each other, draw near to God as we see the day of God drawing near. So, beloved, right from the break, God wants you to have a disciplined and dedicated rhythm of meeting with him and his people each week on the day that he set aside, on the Lord's day. If, if we don't have a commitment to weekly gathering with God and his people, then we're practicing abstinence from God, abstinence from worship. We, I think we're meant to understand that's sin. Right? Failing to meet with God's people. We are denying ourselves the encouragement we need, the perseverance we need, the grace that God gives when we gather together. So I don't know if you think of Sundays as common or holy. I don't know if you think of what we might call the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, as a common thing or a profane thing or a holy thing to be set apart, dedicated to God. Even in our rhythms of work and rest, there's to be the reflection of God's holiness. In this case, a day dedicated to him, set apart as holy, for our to meet with him and to enjoy him. Is that, is that how we approach the Lord's day? I, I hope it is. So that's the weekly rhythm. The rest of the chapter is given over to the, um, the sort of annual rhythms by talking about um, several celebrations. You see the Passover in verses 4 and 5, um, the Feast of First Fruits, or excuse me, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, verses 6 to 8, the First Fruits, verses 9 to 14, the Feast of Weeks in verses 15 to 22. Uh, then we have the Feast of Trumpets in verses 23 to 25, uh, and the Day of Atonement, verses 26 to 32, and the Feast of Booths uh, in verses 33 to 36 and 39 to 42. All of this is to sort of develop for Israel, as we said, a calendar of meeting with God. But more than that now, this was also a way of God catechizing Israel, of teaching Israel the faith by memorializing his acts of deliverance for them. So each of these celebrations is going to harken back in some way to the Exodus and God's deliverance of Israel from the Exodus. It's going to harken forward in some way to the necessity of trusting God as they celebrate these feasts. And these feasts would be a main way for passing on the faith to young Israelites. So the whole nation was to participate in this. The children were to be taught the meaning of these things. And when they grew up and had children, they would teach the meaning of these things too and so pass on the faith. So part of what we have here is God's way of catechizing his people through celebration. So if we want to use an illustration from our own time, we might think of Easter and Christmas, for example, as two holidays that Christians celebrate around the world. Well, at the very least, at Easter and Christmas, we should be telling people what this means. It's not about the Easter bunny. 
It's not about the egg. Something far more powerful and, and wonderful happened that day. Christ got up from the grave, right? And so we pass on the faith. And same with Christmas. It's not about the tree, right? I mean, you know, if you want to put up your tree, I'm not knocking your tree. But it ain't about the tree. It's not about the gifts we give each other. It's about the Son of God coming into the world in human flesh to be our Savior, to rescue us from sin and judgment and to make us God's people, right? So as we tell those stories, as we tell those truths over and over again, we catechize our kids. We teach them the faith. We bring them into the truth. That's what's happening here in this chapter with these celebrations. Let's look at them uh, in terms of meeting with God in, in yearly rhythms. Let's take them one by one. First, we get to Passover. You see that there in verses 4 and 5? These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, in the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. So it's the first month, the month Abib, is the 14th day. Every year, on the calendar, mark it down. They're going to celebrate the Passover. Well, what is the Passover? Well, remember that Leviticus is part two to the book of Exodus. And what's just happened in the book of Exodus? Well, God has delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, and he has began the work of making them into a holy people and leading them to the promised land. Well, while they were in slavery in Egypt, you recall God did ten miracles through Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh over and over again and says, let my people go. Pharaoh would harden his heart, not let them go. God would do a miracle to demonstrate his power. Well, the last of the, of the judgments and miracles that occurred there in the Exodus, is, it occurs on this night that becomes called Passover, where the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt and would kill all the firstborn males of the animals and of the people unless on the doorposts of that house there was blood spread on the doorpost. The angel of death would look at the blood and pass over that house, sparing the firstborn of those houses. And so God now is commanding them to remember that deliverance, how he struck down those who were not covered by the blood, and how he saved those who were. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel, how, how God's judgment passes over us and falls on Jesus if we have put faith in him. But his terrible judgment, if we have not put faith in him, how that judgment falls on us instead if we're not covered by the blood of Christ through faith in him. And so they are memorializing this day uh, every year, celebrating God's deliverance, God being a savior to them in the celebration of the Passover. Now we come to the, the second of the, of the feast there in verses 6 to 8. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. It starts the very next day after the Passover. You see that there in verse 6? Passover is one day, but this feast is seven days. So for seven days, they cannot eat any bread with leaven in it, with yeast in it. And again, this goes back to the Exodus itself. It goes back then to that night where God finally leads them out of um, slavery. They are to be ready to go after the Passover. They are to be packed and they're to have a meal. And that meal is made up in part of unleavened bread. They would carry that bread in their pouches and their satchels as God would lead them um, in power out of slavery in Egypt. Exodus chapter 13. If you keep your finger in Leviticus and turn back to your left a few pages, go back to Exodus chapter 13, we'll see that first, that how, this, how this feast gets established back in Exodus 13. 
Then Moses said, beginning in verse 3, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statue at its appointed time from year to year. So God designed this feast of unleavened bread to remind them about the hardship of that deliverance. So they'd be grateful for the blessing of the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey, this land of houses that they didn't build and wells that they didn't dig. And they're passing it on from generation to generation. This feast was catechizing young Israelites in the remembrance of that night when God, with a strong arm, led them out of slavery in Egypt. As the Bible unfolds, we learn that leaven is often symbolic of sin. And so he's calling in this symbolic way his people to be without sin, to be holy. Even in this meal, he's teaching them that he is holy and they are to be holy too. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it gathers God's people, remembering his deliverance in holiness. Well, back in Leviticus 23, verses 9 to 14, we get the Feast of First Fruits. If you want to see that explained, in more detail, you can write this down, you can look at Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 to 11. There, the writer in Deuteronomy gives us the, the meaning of this feast of first fruits. Uh, it even gives us the exact words that they are meant to say when they celebrate this feast. In fact, that's worth looking at. Look over in Deuteronomy, chapter 26. So you got Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. There, Moses writes to Israel, when you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance that, and have taken the possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God has given you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, gives the exact words to say, I declare today to the Lord your God, that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. And the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid us on hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. 
And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good the Lord your God has given to you and to your house. You and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. Isn't that a beautiful celebration? Right, so this is the feast of first fruits. You're coming into the land, you're agricultural people. Now, first fruits are, are sort of happening early in the harvest, right? So the thing about this is you don't actually know how the harvest is going to go yet, right? You're getting the first parts of that harvest. You gather it in a basket. You take it to the tabernacle or you take it to the temple. You take it to the priest and you dedicate it to God. You give it to God, which is an act of faith. You're saying two things when you participate this, if you're an ancient Israelite. As we just read here, you're saying to God, you have kept your promise. We were wandering Arameans, right? We were, we were just drifting in the desert until we wound up in Egypt, and you promised to deliver us and promised to bring us into this land, and here I am in this land, reaping the fruit of this land. You are a God who keeps your word. You are a God who delivers and a God who provides. And so therefore, in faith, I'm giving to you the first part of what I've gotten from you. I'm going to wait for you to give the fuller part. But I'm not going to wait to see to worship you. I'm going to worship you before I see it. It's calling them into faith here, right? And it's calling them again into the remembrance of what God has done to deliver them from Israel. Listen, beloved, God's a promise-making God, and God is a promise-keeping God. And one of the best things we can do for our faith is have some rituals for remembering that. Have some celebrations for remembering that. That God who promises also delivers. He fulfills. And so we can trust him. We can trust him with the first paycheck. Even though the bills are due and we ain't got it all yet, right? We, we can trust him with, with the first fruits of any prosperity, of any offering, of any, any gain that we have. In fact, we better trust him with it because he's just that good. And he fulfills and delivers and provides over and over and over again. And so they're going to start the harvest season with giving God the harvest even before they've got it. Because that's what God is like. That's what he deserves. He's just good that way. So that's the Feast of First Fruits. Then we get the Feast of Weeks. You see that in verses 15 to 22? Feast of Weeks um, celebrates the, the sort of the beginning of the, of the fuller harvest. The, it, it happens seven weeks later. So they had to count seven Sabbaths from that last Sabbath, from that last seven-day celebration to the 50th day, and then there began this Feast of Weeks, which is, again, looking forward to the, the fuller harvest. Now, we were just in Deuteronomy 26. If you're still there, flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 16. Because there we're going to get instructions again on the, on the Feast of Weeks, verses 9 to 12. Deuteronomy 16, verses 9 to 12. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put into the standing grain. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. 
And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. So basically, seven weeks, that's what, two months? Two months later, we're partying again with God, right? We've got this feast of weeks. And two months later, we've got now another reminder at the cookout that God brought us out of Egypt. This is God's way of saying, I think of saying, never forget your salvation. Never forget your testimony. Never forget how I delivered you, how I rescued you, how I saved you, how I brought you out of the stuff you were in whether it was Egypt for Israel or whether it was sin for us. God is like, you need some memorials for remembering who I am and remembering my, my great salvation, that I brought you out and celebrating together with me in these ways. And notice now, this is Israel celebrating this. God is careful to remind them you were slaves in Egypt. That's to shape their identity. And it's to shape their entire ethical system. See, remembering that you were once bound and shackled and mistreated, making bricks without straw, that's to shape now how you treat people who are struggling and hurting and marginalized. So in, 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 in Leviticus 23, around verse 22, you got a verse there that seems like it's out there all by itself, kind of hanging there. But it's really, when you read Deuteronomy 16, it's, it's really quite central to the celebration of this feast of weeks. Notice there in verse 22. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. When you've been a poor slave, you ought to be sympathetic to poor people. When you know that you have suffered, you ought to be sympathetic to suffering people. This, this is why a, a pastor who's never suffered is often an, un, an unhelpful pastor's sufferers. Because suffering is conceptual to them. And they give you a lot of conceptual answers. This is what you ought to do, or you wouldn't be suffering if you did this, and da da da. It's all real neat and tidy. But how did Jesus become a perfect high priest for us? I mean, what he suffered. He suffered so that he would be able to what? Identify with us in our weakness. And that's not true, just true of pastors. That's true to be, that's to be true of all God's people. There's a purpose in our suffering. There's multiple purposes in our suffering, in our alienation, in our marginalization, in our loneliness, in our depression, in, in, in our pain physically. There's purposes in it. One is that we might be sympathetic with other people who suffer. If we're going to be agents of healing in the world, We've got to be gentle with pain. We've got to be gentle with the sufferer. Here's a whole feast that's reminding them of that. Leave the gleanings in the field because there are poor people and immigrants coming along behind you. Don't reap your fields all the way to the edges and take in all the crop, take in all the abundance and be selfish with it. Leave it for some people who are coming behind you. And they might eat too. And they might know my goodness too. This is the pattern of the, of the holy life. We're to remember God's deliverance, celebrate it, 
celebrated to the point where we also are provoked to generosity to others who likewise need this God. And so that's the Feast of Weeks. And then we come down to verses 23 to 25. We get the Feast of Trumpets. Notice again in verse 24, it takes place in the seventh month on the first day of the month. This month, the seventh month is about to be a busy month of partying. It's just like the 4th of July, right? It was a day of solemn rest and a memorial. So, again, a day of not working, dedicated to the Lord. And a memorial. The memorial itself was to be signaled by the blast of trumpets. Numbers chapter 29, verse 1 says, it is a day for you to blow the trumpets. That seems to be the whole point of the day. Apparently, God likes jazz. So I can't help but think of like a New Orleans band working its way through the streets with all the brass instruments and whatnot. But they're blowing these trumpets in celebration. They're blowing these trumpets in praise of God. They're blowing these trumpets remembering the the goodness of God on this day, setting it apart for his worship. It's a holy convocation that begins with a burnt offering along with the regular offerings to the Lord. It's the Feast of Trumpets. Then verses 26 to 32, the Day of Atonement. This is the holiest day of, in all of Israel. Happens on the 10th day of the 7th month, verse 27 tells us. And all of Leviticus chapter 16 is dedicated to uh, instructions about this Day of Atonement. So we won't, we've seen that, we've talked about that, we won't review that here. We just want to zero in on the purpose in verses 28 to 30. It is a day, the last part of verse 28, it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that day, that very day, that person will destroy, be destroyed from among his people. So now this day has a different tone to it. This day is way more sober. That's what's meant here by you will afflict yourself. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to get whips and beat yourself and, and do those kinds of things. No, no, afflict yourself spiritually. You're going to mourn for your sins. You're going to think about the ways in which you have broken God's law. You're going to think about the ways in which you have fallen short of his glory. You're going to recall very intentionally the fact that you are an imperfect person before a perfect God. And so there's going to be, a, in that sense, a, a day of mourning, a day of affliction. But you're not going to stay in that. The purpose of the day is atonement. On this day, there are going to be sacrifices made that, that cover all the sins of Israel for that whole year. And on this day, uh, atonement means to be made at one again. You're going to be made at one again with God. So you're going to begin in affliction, and you're going to end in celebration. You're going to begin with confession. You're going to end with forgiveness. You're going to begin in lowliness, but you're going to be lifted up in the forgiveness of God and in reconciliation with God. One day, one sacrifice, take care of all the sins of all God's people. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to imagine what that's pointing to. It's a solemn day. We afflict ourselves. And notice how seriously God takes this. That if a person fails to afflict themselves, that day they're going to be cut off. It's like saying, 
if you would prefer to just continue in your sin, I'm going to actually consign you to your sins. Well, that day, if, which is meant to be a Sabbath, you decide, you know what, I'd rather work than seek God's forgiveness. And by that choice, God says, to be destroyed on that day. But the discipline of the Lord is as present as the forgiveness of the Lord. God is serious about holiness. He's glad to forgive. But you can't get that forgiveness on your own terms. It has to be on his. And here in this celebration, it's confess your sins. Focus on God. And beloved, day of atonement or not, it's always a good day to confess your sins and go to God for forgiveness and for atonement. That's the day of atonement. Then we come finally to the Feast of Booths. Feast of Booths. Um, with the Feast of Booths, um, again, we're in the seventh month. Text says there it begins on the 15th day. So we've had a celebration on the first day, the 10th day, and now the 15th day. This also begins with the blasting of the trumpets. And the main purpose of the Feast of Booths is to remind Israel of their wilderness journey to Canaan. And during that journey, um, let's see verse, what verse is that near the, near the end there. Verse 43, during that journey, they had to live in booths. And so now verse 43 tells us that all these generations are going to celebrate this so that they may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Why is that important to God? Why does he bring that back to God or, or back to their attention? Well, how, how easy it would be to be in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to be in a house you didn't build, to be drinking from wells you didn't drink, to be gathering in the harvest with all of its plenty, how easy it would be to sort of sit there and think that was about you, that we did that, right? We, we reaped this thing or we did this thing. How easy it would be to forget God and that God had done this. And so God is like, yo, your home ain't permanent. Your, your home is really up to me, right? Yeah, I brought you out of Egypt. And for a while, I had you uh, on the side of the road taking leaves and taking branches and building these little booths and, and decorating these booths, verse 41, with fruit and things of that sort. Now I want to remind you that you, you just recently delivered from homelessness. And every year as you enjoy these houses and you enjoy these gifts that have come by my hand, you need to remember that they come by my hand. And you need to remember that not tomorrow you can be homeless again if I don't show you grace. And so he's just giving them a festival and a rhythm for remembering his deliverance, whether it was the Passover or, or whether it was the night that they fled um, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread or here now in this feast, remembering the journey itself. We were homeless, living in makeshift tents, but God now has brought us into this land. And we dare not forget the God who brought us here. Dare not forget. This celebration would happen at the end of the harvest season. So all this abundance and plenty. And God is just reminding them. And it's interesting because Israel would forget this. Of all the feasts that are listed here, this one is, this one is referenced a number of times in the rest of Scripture. So, for example, in 
uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, when Nehemiah is recovering the word of God, etc. Nehemiah 8, verses 14, 17, it realized, man, God commanded us to do this thing here. We've been in exile. We've been homeless, right? We've been sent away from around. We should have been keeping this feast. And they start to keep the feast again. Or in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16, Zechariah prophesies that the nations will come to God in this feast. That the nations will have their homelessness ended and will come to God in his kingdom at the Feast of Booths. Or you might remember in Jesus' earthly life, John chapter 7, verse 2, it was during the Feast of, the feast of Booths that his brothers were like, if you all that, you ought to go show the people how great you are. Just missing the whole point of the feast, missing the one who is there, who is tabernacling among them. So God has he's built this yearly calendar that the people might remember. Now, real quick before we talk about meeting with God eternally, notice that this calendar has an every week rhythm, but it doesn't have an everyday rhythm. So there are periods of just normal activity. In one sense, that's blessed by God. But in another sense, that very period of normal activity where we're not feasting is a reminder that we're not home yet. That their salvation isn't finished yet. Right? That they, they will have these high periods on the mountaintop of feasting, and then they'll go back to the valley and the plain and live these long, ordinary days. Right? They are living between these peak experiences. And that, that very pattern, I think, is an indication to Israel that they ain't home yet. They're not there yet. That their celebration of God and their meeting with God, their feasting with God, is not yet their constant, unending activity. That's why feasting with God is ultimately the point of this text, feasting with him eternally. So real quick, how does this become our eternal experience? Well, it's through Jesus. Let me give you several passages of scripture related to these feasts and how they are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus fulfills all the Bible, including the partying text of the Bible. So, first of all, Jesus is our true Sabbath. It begins with the Sabbath uh, in the beginning of this list of things, and and that Sabbath occurs once a week. But now Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, tells us that Israel did not enter the Sabbath rest because they did not believe in Jesus. And even those who believe in Jesus, the writer of Hebrews tells us that there is still yet a rest that remains. It's not the old Sabbath rest of the law. It's the new Sabbath that is eternal, which is a rest that we enter into, not by works, but by faith. Jesus has become our Sabbath. He has become our rest. That's why if we take his yoke upon us, we find that his burden is light, his way is easy. He is our rest, our eternal rest, our forever rest, which we enter into right now by faith. Not only is it our rest, he's our true Passover and our unleavened bread. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Why? For Christ, 
our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Oh, we still keep the feast of unleavened bread, but we realize it ain't about bread at all. It's about God's people. We are the bread, and we keep that feast by a commitment to holiness. And so Paul would go on to sort of tell us to, in various ways, do away with sin and to, to sanctify ourselves. But, but that all began because we have a Passover lamb that we eat. And it's not the four-legged lamb. It's the lamb who was pierced for our sins. It's the lamb who died on the cross for us. It's the lamb who was resurrected. It is Jesus Christ. He has become our Passover. That's why I always chuckle at Christians who, who discover the feast in the Bible and they get excited and that's wonderful. And then, they, and then they show up and they say something like, man, we need to keep these feasts. You mean the one the Jews celebrated? Yeah, we need to get back to that. No, 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 no. I'm going forward to Jesus. No, 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 no. No, no. There's a true unleavened bread. It's the church of the Lord. And there's a true Passover lamb. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. No, I'm, I'm going that way with the feast. Because Jesus is the one who is fulfilling that. Even the Last Supper was, a, was a, a taking of the Passover meal and a reinterpretation of it in light of Jesus and his sacrifice for our sins. We'll take the supper next week, Lord willing. We'll be in that sense celebrating the Passover, but not like an Old Testament Jew who has not received their Messiah, but like a New Testament Christian who gets to meet with God eternally. It's pointing to that day when we will feast with him in his kingdom. And, and what else? He's not only our Passover and our unleavened bread, but Jesus is, he's our day of atonement. He's our atoning sacrifice. That day of atonement where all the sins of the whole nation are forgiven, are, 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 are washed away by that one sacrifice. Well, that's looking to Calvary. That's looking to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. And every priest, Old Testament priest, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Calvary was the day of atonement. Golgotha was the day of atonement. That was the day where not just all the sins of Israel but all the sins of the world for all time were nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. When he died, that we, through faith in him, would be made at one again with God. That's our day of atonement. And is Jesus not also our first fruits? I love the way one writer at Ligonier Ministries put it. He says, somewhere around A.D. 30, the first fruits of an even greater harvest issued forth. For it was on the first day after the Sabbath that occurred in the midst of the Passover celebration that Jesus rose from the dead. Lest there be any doubt that his resurrection fulfilled the feast of first fruits. Paul tells us explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 20 and 23, that his resurrection fulfilled, excuse me, that Christ is the first fruits of those who will be raised from the dead. Just as the first fruits offered to God in the old covenant anticipated the fuller harvest to come, the resurrection of Jesus anticipates the bodily resurrection of his people. First promise under the old covenant. He's our first fruits. Not, not of, a, of a plant and a fruit, but of resurrection. 
and life. This is how we feast eternally. It's by knowing this Jesus. By coming to him, confessing our sins, putting our faith in him as our God and the fulfillment of all God's promises. And following him in that obedience that comes from faith. It is, it is by repentance and faith that we are reconciled with God through Jesus Christ. And when we are reconciled with God through Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. We have peace with God. We have adoption as his children. We become this new holy lump, this unleavened bread of a church. It has Christ as his head, the spirit indwelling us and the glory of the Father in an eternal heaven to await us. Beloved, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we want you to get in on this. We want you to come to know this Jesus and to feast with this God. I don't, I don't know what image came to mind for you when, when I asked the question, what's it like to meet with God? Maybe you're one of those persons who's bored with the idea. Maybe you're one of those persons that's indifferent to it. Maybe, maybe being angry with the notion. I don't know. But what I can tell you is that God has prepared a feast for his people. And he has called us to come to it, where we could eat with him and be with him and enjoy him and in his presence find fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. I'm offering you a party. God offers you a party. I like any of the little raggedy parties you've been to before. One that never ends, where the trumpets flow and the angels shout and the saints dance and the glory of the Lord goes on forever and ever and ever. If God offers you a feast, don't go back to dumpster diving. If God offers you a feast, come to his table. Eat with him. Enjoy him. Love him. Be loved by him. It's what he wants for you. It's what he wants for me. I'm going to pray for us and I invite us to, to go to the Lord, to meet with him. To ask him to bring us into his presence and to bring us into that feast on that great and glorious day. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you, you can ask him for a new heart, for forgiveness, for eternal life. He will answer that prayer. Put your faith in Jesus, who has died for your sins and been raised from the grave. And if Christ is already your hope, beloved, you, you can ask him to, to give you an even clearer picture of who he is and a, and a deeper satisfaction in him and to awaken in you a, a, a thirst, a hunger for that feast on that day. All those who thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied. Let's go to him, saint and sinner, Forgiven and unforgiven, and let's go to him and ask for his grace. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we do thank you that you have so desired to be with us that you've given us a calendar. You've scheduled it. We get so distracted and so busy that if left to ourselves, we, we'd run around like chickens with our heads cut off, and, and, and meeting with you would often be an afterthought. So thank you for in your grace, establishing in the weekly rhythms a day where we come to be with you. 
And thank you for, in your grace, opening the very courts of heaven to us so that we don't have these long periods where we are not meeting with you, but we can come to you every day, every moment, every hour, and be in your presence and meet with you. Thank you, O Lord Jesus, that you have fulfilled everything that the Old Testament promised. You have fulfilled every celebration, every type, every symbol. It all leads to you. It all finds its fulfillment in you. And so we, we all find our satisfaction in you. And that's what we pray for, Lord. Satisfy us with yourself. This morning, there's someone who is praying to you, Lord, asking you to forgive their sins. Give them, show them, Lord. Cause them to feel your forgiveness. And even if they don't feel it, cause them to hang on to your word, which promises forgiveness. And anyone who confesses their sin, that you would forgive them and cleanse them of all unrighteousness. So when their hearts lie to them, Lord, let them not doubt your word. And this morning, there are saints here who are needing revival, needing to be refreshed, needing to be awakened, needing to be reminded of your salvation and reminded of your provision, who, who need the ritual. And, and, and I pray, O oh Lord, help them to establish, help us to establish the, the regular reminder of, of your great salvation, how you brought us out of our sins and made us your people. Let us never forget that. Let that never be a small thing to us. Let us celebrate it over and over again, every Lord's Supper, every baptism, every conversation where your name comes up. Let our heart be made glad that you have saved us. We see very clearly from your word that you desire to meet with your people. You have not saved us to neglect us, but to enjoy us and to have us enjoy you. So Lord, let us, let us do that. Let us feast with you. Let us delight in you. Let us eat and drink and be glad for you are our God and we are your people. Let us enter your courts with thanksgiving. Enter your house with praise. Let us with great anticipation, Lord, press and long for that day when we shall enter that eternal Sabbath of rest forever in your glory. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We tire of this world all of its pain, all of its brokenness, all of its lamentable things. Come quickly. Gather us. Bring us home, we pray, so we dwell no longer in booths, but in that kingdom, in that mansion, whose builder and maker is God. Bring us home, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.